bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, January 15th, 2019. I'm in D.C. this week, along with several of my Novogratik colleagues for the HFA Institute. This is an annual event held by the National Council of State Housing Agencies, and my colleagues and I will be speaking to conference attendees about a number of low-income housing tax credit topics, including, no surprise, opportunity zones and income averaging. Let's kick off this week's podcast by noting that this week marks 53 years since the implementation of the Department of Housing and Urban Development, as well as the appointment of its first secretary. President Lyndon Johnson signed legislation to authorize the creation of HUD four months earlier, in September 1965, but the department was not implemented until January 13, 1966. Robert Weaver, by the way, was appointed that day as the first HUD secretary and the first African-American cabinet member. I'll have an update on HUD in today's podcast and how the government shutdown is affecting the administration of critical programs. Turning now to other topics in this week's podcast, we have lots of news to share with you, including the names of new members of the House Ways and Means Committee, the Tax Writing Committee in the House, an overview as to how the government shutdown is affecting various housing and community development programs. We also have some insights to share that were gleaned from our Miami Housing Conference that was held just last week. Also, I have some brief California state news on Opportunity Zones and affordable housing funding, as well as news about a bill to increase the Renewable Energy Investment Tax Credit percentage. As you've just heard, we have a lot of news to share with you today, so if you're ready, let's get started. In general news, the House Ways and Means Committee added 10 new Democrats to the committee last week. Who are the new members? Well, the 10 members are Gwen Moore of Wisconsin, Dan Kildee of Michigan, Brendan Boyle of Pennsylvania, Don Baer of Virginia, Dwight Evans of Pennsylvania, Brad Schneider of Illinois, Tom Suisi of New York, Jimmy Panetta of California, Stephanie Murphy of Florida, and Stephen Horsford of Nevada. None of the incoming Ways and Means Democrats are first-term Congress members, by the way. Stephen Horsford wasn't in Congress last year, but he was originally elected in 2012, defeated in 2014, and then re-elected in November. Now, you may have heard that members of the Congressional Progressive Caucus had received a pledge from House leadership to reserve at least 40% of key committee seats for their members. And the caucus did expect that some of those assignments would go to first-term representatives. That didn't happen. 40% of the Ways and Means Committee Democrats are indeed Progressive Caucus members, but none of them were true first-term members. Now, these 10 new members will join 14 returning Democrats on the committee for a total of 24 members. On the Republican side of the aisle, Republican Ways and Means Committee members were supposed to be named last week, but that decision was postponed until this week. We do expect to hear about Republicans adding two new committee members soon, and I'll send out a tweet when I have public confirmation of the names, and I'll note that in next week's podcast as well. Now, let's move on to partial government shutdown news. Today is officially day 25 of the partial government shutdown and there's no clear end in sight. The House did pass separate bills to fund Treasury and the IRS, as well as the Department of Transportation and HUD, or 
Tihad last week. But the White House issued a veto threat to any funding legislation that does not include border wall funding. And the Senate thus did not take up the legislation passed in the House. And so the impasse over reopening the government continues. The effects of the government shutdown on affordable housing were a hot topic at our Miami Housing Conference last week. Now I'll share the insights from our conference on the effects the partial government shutdown is having on affordable housing in a bit later in this podcast. But first, let's look at how the shutdown is affecting opportunity zones, community development more broadly, historic rehabilitation, and renewable energy. Now in general, we can't expect indefinite delays on IRIS guidance or new regulations, which includes a delay on the next tranche of opportunity zones regulations. Now, the IRS announced that a hearing on proposed Opportunity Zones regulations that had been scheduled for January 10th of last week was postponed until after the government reopens, and more specifically, until two weeks after the announcement of the new date, which will come after the government reopens. So that hearing is postponed for a while. Now, that was certainly disappointing news to those of us waiting for clarification of key Opportunity Zones questions. Now, the shutdown is also delaying meaningful action on the recently announced formation of the White House Opportunity Revitalization Council, another way in which Opportunity Zones and urban and distressed rural areas could be better served by agreements among various federal agencies. Now, the shutdown also suspended CDFI fund services. Non-essential CDFI fund staff are furloughed, and that includes new Marcus Tax Credit Program staff. What does this mean? Well, it means the calendar year 2018 New Markets Tax Credit Awards announcement that had been planned for late February will also be delayed, likely into late March or early April. Phase two reviews of New Markets Tax Credit applications, we understand, are also suspended until the government reopens and restores the CDFI fund's full operations. Also on pause is access to CDFI fund help desks and the CDFI Fund Awards Management Information System, or AMIS. Community development entities with reports due through AMIS by the end of the calendar year will now need to be given a reporting deadline extension. But there's no word yet, official word that is, on a reporting extension. Now, on to historic tax credits. They're effective as well. The government shutdown has stopped the National Park Service from reviewing and processing parts one, two, and three of the historic tax credit application. In effect, some historic tax credit transactions will have their underwriting or financing delayed until further notice. And for renewable energy, the effects of the shutdown are less direct or obvious, but they're occurring. Now, I do have a request for our audience. If there are issues that you're facing, we'd like to know. Please email those issues associated with the partial government shutdown to cpas at novaco.com or Send out a tweet of the issue and include my Twitter handle, at Novogratic, so I'll be sure to notice it. In sum, the government shutdown has far-reaching effects on various government programs. There are many unanswered questions about timing, deadlines, guidance, and more. As we get more news on the government shutdown, we'll share them in future podcasts. As I mentioned earlier, we held the Novogratic 2019 Affordable Housing Conference in Miami last week. The theme of the conference was using RAD and the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit to improve communities. At the conference, there was plenty of talk about the federal government shutdown. During our Washington Report session, 
panelists talked about the effect of the government shutdown and specifically on affordable housing. Now, negotiations to end the shutdown are on the front burner, which puts most other issues on the back burner. This includes efforts to reintroduce the Affordable Housing Tax Credit Improvement Act and other affordable housing and community development legislation. But an obvious headline issue is how the government shutdown affects properties that work with HUD for funding. Now, there have been nearly 1,200 expired contracts in December and January, and another 500 in February and 550 in March that are coming up. Now, these expired rental contracts means that they'll get no housing assistance payments. Now, some of these properties do have access to reserves or residual receipts. However, not all of the properties have reserves or residual receipts, and the amount of resources available will vary considerably among the properties. Now, it's quite possible that many affected owners will soon have to face the difficult choice and possible choice of either increasing rent on very low-income seniors or people with disabilities or evicting them in order to avoid a foreclosure. Now, many such properties are FHA-insured, so HUD may end up getting hit with claims against FHA insurance. Hopefully, this all doesn't happen, and hopefully the government shutdown ends soon, and these contracts can be extended and funded. Now, out of 7,000 or so HUD workers, there were reportedly only 325 people working during the government shutdown. These are the 325 people or so that are considered essential employees. Now, another impact of the shutdown for our conference was that Tom Davis, our keynote speaker, wasn't able to attend. Davis, as you may know, is the director of the Office of Recapitalization in HUD's Office of Multifamily Housing Programs. That's the office, of course, that oversees the RAD program. RAD, of course, is Rental Assistance Demonstration Program. Now, another issue is a suspension of RAD deal closings, and there's no word yet on any extensions. Now, my colleague, Novogratz's Dave Grubbin, talked about how the government will likely have to push back the announcement of income limits that was originally expected in April. These are the limits, these income limits determine rent and qualifying income levels for low-income housing tax credit and many taxes and bond finance developments. Now, Grubman heard that furloughed HUD employees do not have access to their work emails as well. So even if they wanted to do work, they can't. Now, that's all to say that when the government does reopen, HUD employees will have an avalanche of emails to catch up on. Now, panelists at the conference did give their best guesses on how long it would take HUD to get back up to speed. And that estimate is probably in the 30 to 60 days once the government reopens. But this 30 to 60 days estimate depends on how long the government shutdown drags on and how much of a backlog HUD staff will face when they get back into the office. While the government shutdown was a central topic, it wasn't the only topic in Miami. The conference was a great chance to get updates as to what's happening with HUD's rental assistance demonstration program, as well as the rest of affordable rental housing. One of the panels was on combining long housing tax credit transactions, specifically when used with RAD, with the Opportunity Zones incentive. Now, the Opportunity Zones incentive is still new, and few twinning transactions have been made. But the panel focused on how the Opportunity Zones incentive makes sense with affordable housing, specifically because many RAD transactions take place in Opportunity Zones. Now, on the investor side, we heard that many traditional low-income housing tax credit investors, primarily banks, don't have significant capital gains, which is the main driver 
for the Opportunity Zones incentive. However, investments in Opportunity Zones will likely receive Community Reinvestment Act credit, so banks themselves will still probably or will be interested in such investments. And we are seeing, albeit limited at the moment, some Opportunity Fund investments in low-income housing tax credit properties. We're also seeing financing coming from both a traditional low-income housing tax credit investor as well as an Opportunity Fund as a sidecar, essentially two sources of financing or two sources of partners funding a tax credit transaction. Now, combining the Opportunity Zones incentive with low-income housing tax credits is a significant possibility is happening, albeit it is in the early stages. I do want to say thanks to everyone who came to Miami. Now, unfortunately, I wasn't able to make it. I was scheduled to be in D.C. to speak at the Opportunity Zones public hearing on January 10th. And as I noted earlier, unfortunately, that hearing at the last minute was a casualty to the government shutdown. For those of you that attended our Miami conference or those of you that wanted to but couldn't, our next affordable housing conference will be in late May in beautiful San Francisco. I've included the link to register for that conference with this week's show notes. I'll also send out a tweet of the link as well. Now let's turn to other news, more particularly California news. California Governor Gavin Newsom's 2019-2020 budget proposal included some very hopeful news for affordable housing and community development. The budget proposal calls for California to conform to federal law allowing for deferred and reduced taxes on capital gains in opportunity zones. Now, it appears that this proposed conformity could be limited to investments in green technology or in affordable housing. It's also unclear if those green technology and affordable housing investments would have to be in California-based businesses. Now, California currently does not conform to the Federal Opportunity Zone statute, and if California does limit its conformity to the Opportunity Zone incentive in the way that I just mentioned, then the impact on investment in Opportunity Zones across the country could be dramatically affected, as resident California taxpayers would see significantly reduced benefits from Opportunity Zones investing. Such a limitation could also adversely affect the level of investment from national funds in California, as such investments would not receive the full benefit of gain exclusion, at least at the state level, if the investments are held for 10 years. Please stay tuned. We're monitoring these developments closely, and we'll report back in future podcasts. Now, in addition, the proposed California budget also includes expanding the state low-income housing tax credit, and it's a pretty dramatic expansion, increasing it to $500 million a year beginning in 2019. $300 million of that allocation authority would go to the state's existing low-income housing state tax credit program. The remaining would go to a new program to house households earning between 60 and 80 percent a very median income. Sort of like the middle-income housing tax credit legislation that's been introduced in the past by Senator Ron Wyden. Now, the next step in California's budget process is for the budget bills to be introduced and considered in the Assembly and the Senate, and California's constitutional deadline to ratify state budget is June 15th. Turning to federal renewable energy legislation, a bill was introduced last week in Congress to increase the Section 48 Renewable Energy Investment Tax Credit an increase for two years. Specifically, the bill would increase the investment tax credit rate to 50% for small solar properties of less than 20 kilowatts that begin construction in 2020 or 2021. 
The bill would also increase the Section 25D residential energy credit to 50%. And this would similarly be small solar properties in tax years 2020 and 2021. Now, Democratic Rep Joe Neguse of Colorado said in the statement that he introduced the bill to help make solar more competitive with utility rates in more markets. Now, the legislation is creatively called the Solar Expansion of Distributed Generation Exponentially Act, or Solar Edge Act. I have posted a link in today's show notes. Well, that brings it to the end of this week's report. I do hope to see many of you next week in San Diego for our Novigradic 2019 New Markets Tax Credit Conference. The conference will be next Thursday and Friday, January 24th and 25th. There, we'll discuss investor trends, compliance hot topics, how to prepare for the next round of allocation awards, and more. And if you haven't registered already, there's still time to do so. I'll include the registration link in today's show notes, and I'll tweet it out as well. That's it for now. I'm Michael Novogratik. As always, thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived podcasts are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. You can find related links referenced in this podcast in our show notes at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast. Novogratik and Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.